Hey everyone, welcome to Eagleomics, a podcast about everything economics, brought to you by the Boston College Economics Association. I'm your host, Martin, and today we are joined by another member of the executive board, Jose Garcia. Thanks for having me, Martin. I'm really excited to be here today. To our listeners, it is our goal that this podcast will entertain you as we delve into fascinating and helpful economic discussions with different Boston College professors. Today, we're here with Professor Christopher Maxwell. Dr. Maxwell originally majored in economics and mathematics at the University of Pennsylvania and later received his master's and PhD at Harvard. Now, he teaches several courses at Boston College, including microeconomics, econometrics, and applied econometric theory. He has been published in the Oxford University Press and Journal of Economic Literature, along with posting his sports predictions on cmaxsports.com. Thank you for coming in, Professor. Is there anything you'd like to add to that bio? Uh, no, it's perfect in all regards. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Professor, so what is sports economics slash econometrics? Um, well, I think it's, uh, well, it is what it says it is. It's sort of the application of econometric techniques to sports data. Um, and in my mind, I mean, my students, uh, I think, learn pretty quickly that I'm not so much a sports fan as a data fan. And what's nice about the sports world is there is just a phenomenal amount of data that's available to you. And so, um, and I like to do econometrics, and I teach econometrics, and I like to apply econometric techniques to sort of interesting questions and interesting problems. And there's a ton of data, so um, so it's just a nice opportunity. Sports, the sports world gives us a nice opportunity to apply econometrics and statistical techniques generally um, to lots and lots of data. And and you know, there's no other business where we know so much about all of the participants and we know so much literally second by second sort of what happens in in, in a match or a game or a season. So it's uh, just a tremendous amount of data and, and a lot of fun to work with. So what pieces are in that model? Is it salary, performance, uh total revenue, like what parts do you put into a model generally? I, it, it depends completely on what you're trying to model. Of course. There are, um, in, in econometrics in the labs, there are what I would refer to as pay performance models where you're trying to understand what factors drive or explain, if you will, the variation in salaries for players, say in baseball or, or in the NBA and basketball. And in those models, uh, you have what is called a dependent variable that you're trying to explain, or which is salary, uh, as somehow measured. Um, and you try to, and you build the model uh, with bringing in lots of explanatory factors that you think might have something to do with salary, and go out and collect lots of data, um, and you know see how much of the variation that you see in player salaries can be explained by things like, you know scoring success or tenure or how tall they are or what positions they play or, or what have you. And what got you interested initially in this space? What got you started? Um, well, when I, when I was in consulting, I ended up doing a lot of work uh, for the sports leagues. And, um, and I didn't really do a lot of data work necessarily with sports data, but I did learn a lot about how the leagues operated. And, uh, and, and, I didn't do a lot of, I never worked for the NHL, but I did work for the other major professional sports leagues. Um, and when I came to BC for this tour of duty, I was initially teaching sports economics, and which is basically applied micro theory uh, in the sports world. And over time, I realized that more and more I was bringing data into the course and into the analysis, and it's sort of one thing to hear what people have to, or to think about what theory tells you, but it's it's oftentimes very instructive to actually go get some data and estimate some models and try to get a sense of, of what the data tells you. And so over time, I mean, the original course was called Sports Economics. Um, and I've also taught courses with names like Sports Analytics or Sports Business. I, I, I co-taught with, with, or I helped out, I guess. It's Warren Zola's course, really, um, to sports econometrics. And then uh, more recently, I've sort of taken the, the sports focus out of the course and now teach a course in topics and applied um, econometrics, which, which covers some sports uh, analysis, but models and analysis, but also covers lots of other stuff in econometrics. Do you think that within 
the sports world and trying to make predictions with using um, your models and theories, do you think there are several indicators that people may overlook or not really recognize within the game that they should look at? Um, no. <laughs> Is this the short answer? I don't... Um uh, so, so there are, so I build these ratings models, um, and I've done them for lots of different sports and every model is different. And, um, I don't really follow closely sort of what other models people sort of think about or, or focus on. Um, you know, I, I, I just sort of focus on the sports and, and the modeling that, that, that I do. I, I, I do think that, that what has completely changed the landscape um, in the last sort of 15 or 20 years is the availability of data. Um, I mean, if you tried to do this 20 years ago, the, 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 the statistical and econometric techniques, you know, were there, but, but there was no real data to work with. And, and now, uh, you know, now literally with every pitch thrown in a Major League Baseball game, we have probably 50 or 60 variables that tell you angular momentum and velocity and you know angle of release and where the pitch was when it crossed the plate and so forth. And that data was, those data were just not available 20 years ago. Um, I will say that there, there, there's, students oftentimes are, seem to be very interested in finding that one statistic that's been overlooked that will have a ton of explanatory power and and my feeling is, you know, if you can find that, great. But the truth is, I don't know why the world just think, worries about one statistic. Why not use a bunch of them and, and see how well your models your models perform? I, I've certainly been in, in the position building models where the models were, you know, so so okay, maybe all right. But and then you get a brain, uh, you know, eureka moment, and and you throw one other explanatory variable or variable into the model, and all of a sudden everything makes a ton of sense, and and, um, and that 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 has certainly happened. But um, but it's it's not because I'm searching for that perfect summary statistic or or what a statistician might refer to as a sufficient statistic. I I think that's that's sort of a fun thing to think about, but. Um, um, you know, like, well, for instance, in baseball, the, there are endless arguments over whether uh, op, uh, on base percentage or slugging have, has more explanatory power. And my response typically is, well, why can't you have them both in your model? Why do you worry about whether or not one has more explanatory power than the other? Um, so, so I'm, I'm, no, I'm not searching for that, that one you know, special statistic that will sort of change the universe. That's really interesting. So, I, I, let me just add quickly, though. What I do think is that um, when you are doing this sort of work, uh, you know, econometrics and statistical knowledge only get you so far, um, and you really need to understand the sport. And um, and what I tell my students in econometrics, and it's very true, which is, you know, you, you build a data set, you estimate some models, you look at the results, and you say, huh. Why did that happen? And, and that's where knowing something about econometrics and statistics is valuable, but really knowing something about your sport is really valuable. And so uh, this search for the perfect statistic, if you will, or, or um, is, it's not just an econometrics exercise. A lot of it has to do with really understanding the sport and getting a feel for what kinds of factors you think might, might uh, uh, be, be, uh, have some explanatory power in your model. And so what's it to you that draws you back to doing this? Like, why do you enjoy building oh. these models? What's, is, what's the passion? What's the result that you like seeing? Oh, it's, it's a great challenge. Um, and, and what I love about doing this kind of modeling is you get to see how well you've done. So um, the truth is, with, with an awful lot of sort of more academic econometrics, people aren't... Um, People are never held accountable for their forecasts or their predictions because they're, you know, they're just trying to estimate some effects. That, and, and it's not as though a game will be played and you'll say that team should have won by four points. How come they lost by 12 or how come they won by 37? <laughs> um, you know, what's wrong with your model? So I, I love that challenge, which is, uh, you know, you, you, you generate forecasts and then you look at what happens and then you scratch your head and say, Huh, I wonder why that happened, and then you go back and work some more on, on the model. Um, the, the, over the years, I've, um, I started building these models almost 30 years ago, and you know, over the years probably have built 
sort of more than worked in a, a, more than a dozen sports, um, and um, mostly because I have friends or relatives who ask me to do you know build a model for them just to give them some insight into what's going on. But but these days I'm 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 pretty much I mean I I do. I, I do think about doing other sports and other models, but I'm pretty much focused on on the uh, the, the European or FIFA models, which is European and South American soccer leagues, as well as Asia Pacific soccer leagues. Um, and I update those that model sort of weekly during the season. And then um, I also have been doing rankings or ratings in collegiate rowing for about 15 years or so. And and in the second week of April, I will get very busy with that. Uh, in the uh, and and those are the two. I I, I was doing um, uh, ice hockey for quite a while and um, collegiate ice hockey, and I stopped doing that recently because the NCAA um, sort of changed the distribution of the data, and it was a ton of work anyway to deal with the changes from year to year, and so. And everybody I knew who was interested in my results was no longer interested, so I stopped uh, with that model. That's very cool. And do you think for your models that you build, is there a step-by-step -step process that you go through for each one, or does it depend on each different type? I, every sport is different, um, and every model is different. There, there are some standard models out there. Um, the, when I first started doing this work, modeling work, um, I was... Um, working with a model that, that I thought I had invented, but the truth is it's called the Bradley-Terry model, and it's been around for a long, long time. Um, and, um, and that's sort of an obvious place, place to start. But, but inevitably, every model is different because every sport is different, and you end up adjusting the models to reflect those differences in sports. So I do not have one standard way of approaching um, uh, models and and I guess the re relatedly a lot of this stuff is is data driven so it's a question of what data you have to work with and you know in some sports we have oodles of data um, in other sports we don't have very much um, and so it you sort of work with what you've got and 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 go from there uh, but no I do not have one standard approach so and what's the easiest hardest sports to model which ones if it's easier, do you find yourself being right more? If it's harder, you know, what, what's what's that right. sort of landscape look like? Um, I, I I wouldn't say that any particular sport I, I thought was easier. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I mean I've stayed away from the professional sports, the North American professional sports. I figure so many people are already do, building those models. I don't I don't have to weigh in. I. Um, College football is certainly a challenge, and that's probably the one sport that has attracted the most interest by people building ratings models, because, um, in part because the season is so short, um, and in part because teams, although teams play a lot within uh, conference, they don't play so much across conferences. And so with, with, with lots of different models, you can do a very good job you know, rating teams within, uh, you know, teams within a conference, but you have a much, much harder time rating teams across conferences. And, and, and um, so that's a real challenge. And, and there are, I mean, I can send you to a website that weekly lists, the, uh, you know, the, the ratings and rankings from over 100 models that are, that are out there. Um, for me personally, rowing has been, was the hardest model that I've ever worked on. And it's probably the one I've worked on the most. Um, it's, Every race is different. Every teams are not the same from week to week. You know, it's everything changes. Um, they barely race at all over the course of the season, and people expect you to be making reliable forecasts and in, in, with three observations. It, it's the whole thing is insane. The fact, the fact that the model works as well as it does is is always a bit of a surprise to me. But it, it does seem to work, to to work well. I, I will say that in terms of challenges, the um, by the end of the season, it's possible to have lots of different models that all pretty much agree on things. It's the, the challenge really is more sort of building reliable models early on, or models that are worth paying attention to early on in the season uh, when you just don't have much data to work with. That's, that's where the challenge really lies. But I would not say that any particular sport was, was easy. Yeah. A thousand percent. And I was actually reading one of your publications on externalities, 
And I was wondering, I wanted to ask about that just because that's obviously a developing thing. Externalities could come up and that's why rules and regulations keep coming in. How does that impact your modeling systems during the time? Uh, I, <laughs> first of all, I'm not quite sure what you're referring to, but secondly, I, not, at all, not, not at all. I, I, the, uh, the, the stuff that I've, uh, I've published is largely theoretical um, and and all this work is very applied. So I, um, yeah, no, I, this is this is just a, a hobby. This this started. Um, m my wife was a third grade Newt girl uh, soccer coordinator for Newton girls soccer, and uh, we were a family. We were on vacation, and 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 she wanted to come up with a schedule for the second half of the season, and she was just going to work with win percent data, and I said, well, you. You have to pay attention to the strength of schedule, you know, or something. I mean, we didn't call it that then, but that's what I was referring to. And so that gave rise to the first model, which uh, actually and it was was actually a lot like the Bradley Terry model. I didn't know it at the time. And, and it's sort of it's just been a hobby. Um, I mean, I have plenty of other stuff to do. I just do this for the fun of it <laughs> in my spare time. <laughs> What's the Bradley Terry model that you mentioned? Uh, so this is... Um, so, so, so the models that people generally, at least the, the people in econometrics or, or a lot of the statistical models that people are working with actually come out of a literature that's been around for over 100 years. And, um, uh, it, it, and it's not, the, the literature is not related to rating or ranking sports teams. It, it has to do with trying to understand consumer preferences and how they drive consumer choice. Um, uh, it's also been used to sort of rate, rate colleges and universities. You look at which schools accepted students and which schools students accepted, which of those schools students enrolled in. And, um, but, but these models of consumer choice have been around for over 100 years. And, and, and basically the parallel is that if I give you, if I'm trying to get a sense of your preferences, I can ask you to choose between pairs of alternatives. And if you like A more than B, that's sort of like team A beating team B. And if you like B more than C, that's sort of like team B beating team C. And so uh, consumer ch consumers choosing preferred outcomes is a lot like working with a ratings model that is working with just win-loss data. And then if the consumers also give you some strength of preference, so I like A more than B a whole lot or a little bit or not so much or I'm indifferent between them, well, that's sort of like one team beating another by a lot of points or not so many points. And so basically, the, the, the standard sorts of models, and the bradley Terry model is one of those. Um, the, the original paper that, w that people think about launching this whole line of research is called Method of Paired Comparisons, uh, which goes back to the early 1900s. And bradley Terry was an extension of that. But, but they're just looking at lots of pairwise choices, and they look at... Which what choices people make, and they end up, you know, using what we would call a logit model or logistic regression analysis to back out consumer preferences. But um, in this day and age, it's a fairly standard methodology. But of course, it was pretty innovative at the time it was was developed. So we were actually talking about before the podcast the movie Moneyball. <laughs> and we wanted to get your take on it because all these models I yeah, yeah, bet yeah. were referenced in that movie somewhere. And we thought that if anybody yeah. could uh, distribute well, what was true and false in that movie, it would be you. Well, oh, I have a few views on Moneyball. First of all, um, uh, I've written an exercise for sports econometrics called Moneyball. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and there's a scene in the movie. I, by the way, I've never seen the movie, just so you know. But oh, the, really? There what? Was a, <laughs> That's like your whole thing. Yeah, we no? thought that you would be the person who would love no, the movie. My, my wife and I, when we had our first child, I stopped watching movies. So the truth is I haven't really watched a, a movie for, for a long time. Oh, okay. That's a true story. Um, so the, um, but, but I, there's a scene in Moneyball where they are writing um, the Pythagorean theorem on the, on the whiteboard. And um, and I talk a fair amount about the Pythagorean theorem. And in fact, I've when I teach sports econometrics, I often lead with that as an example because I think it's a terrific application of statistics to sort of baseball data. And um, the Pythagorean theorem says basically that you can approximate a team's winning percent in baseball over the course of the season 
by runs scored squared divided by runs scored squared plus runs allowed squared. And that's, that is the Pythagorean theorem. It was made famous by a guy named Bill James, who's one of the early sabermetricians or, 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 or well, people doing statistics in baseball. Um, so it turns out, in, in, if you take my course, what you'll learn, you will actually estimate and, and try to figure out whether that, that exponent is two. Should it be run squared squared over run squared squared plus runs allowed squared? And the answer is no, it really should be 1.8. But there's poetic license involved, and we couldn't call it the Pythagorean theorem if, um, uh, if, we, um, if we used 1.8 instead of two. So I, I, I will give Bill James poetic license to, to call it the Pythagorean theorem and use the exponent of two. So, uh, but, it, but it does hold true in the data. And um, in fact, in my econometrics class, people will be estimating those sorts of models with Korean baseball data, uh, oh my God. where wow. the result is also pretty close to, to 1.8. Um, so secondly, the, um, I mean, b baseball, we, we have amazing data with baseball, you, we have data on almost what happened with with almost every certainly with every at bat going almost every at bat going back to 1870, um, and if you think about an at bat, it's it's pretty much a laboratory experiment because it's, you know, the game situations of course change, but but you know when a batter steps into the batter's box, you know that's. That's kind of like conducting an experiment, and it looks a lot like another time the batter stepped into the batter's box. And so, not surprisingly, uh, we have an extraordinary amount of data um, and an extraordinary opportunity to get very creative in creating all sorts of statistics. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, at the time that, that Moneyball came out, that was, I mean, I mean the, the athletics were were said to be taking advantage of this basically on the theory that that on-base percentage was undervalued by the marketplace, and so they were going to go... Kevin Euclid signed a, a nice contract with the athletics, I think it was, because he was the Greek god of walks, and, you know, and he was undervalued in the marketplace. I, I think, um, you know, people have done research on whether or not that undervaluation sort of went away after Moneyball became popularized, and, and there are various people who will say yes it did or some people will say it was never really there in the first place but uh, in any event um, it, it is a nice application of of all the statistical um, uh, data that, that that's out there um, I, I will say that in general um, I mean people ask me what I think of the use of kind of sabermetrics or statistics in baseball and my general view uh, I think I agree with Terry Francona who said you know Sometimes it tells, gives me something to think about that I haven't thought about before. But I, I certainly don't think that anybody should should be a slave to the statistical analysis. I think that you know all the statistics should be taken for what they are, which is they give you insight and some perspective on what's going on. Um, but they're certainly not the be all or end all. And I'll, I'll take care, Terry Francona's judgment and intuition over <laughs> any set of baseball statistics any day. Um, the last thing I'll say about uh, the athletics is I'm, I'm one of the few people in this universe who think that they are definitely not a small market team. Um, and I think that was just, um, uh, that's, that's the convenience justification for why they're unwilling to spend a lot of money on payroll. Um, and, and I've looked at commuting patterns and I've looked at per capita income and I've looked at population data for the Bay Area. And I would be happy to uh, discuss this topic further with anybody. I, I know everybody says I'm wrong, but um, but but I think that that, that they are not a small. It, it's it, it, it. I mean, they can say they're a small market team, but the fact of the matter is, um, you, you know, that there are a lot of people who would be very happy to go to athletics games or would have in those in the day, you know, if they were putting a high quality product out there on, on the field and and. And people can tell me I'm full of hooey, but uh, uh, that's my view. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that sort of aspect of it. What drives consumers to go to games? Yeah, so so there are um, there are lots of these are called attendance models, and um, and that's a part of sports economics uh, as well. Sports part of sports economics or sports econometrics. And there are two sets of models that are very very similar. Um, one set of models looks at all the, the explanatory factors that, that explain um, attendance. 
Um, and you know they're they're as you know broad as you know teams winning percent or things like that. They're as they're as narrow as temperature of the day of the game, whether or not it was a uh, you know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is an afternoon game, is it an evening game, is it you know it is a doubleheader and, and so forth. Um, so uh, the, the attendance models there um, there. Um, I've been a ton of people who have estimated attendance models. In fact, I can show you um, a literature survey that lists, I think, over 200 published papers with attendance models around the for sports around the world. Um, and one of the, one of the, the one of the questions that people come back to often with those attendance models is sort of the importance of competitive balance and whether or not competitive balance drives fan interest, which would translate into and to increased attendance. And um, I, I'm not quite sure how much evidence there is empirically uh, for that argument, but, but certainly people who, who are actively involved in managing and running those sports believe passionately in competitive balance, and that's why you have all sorts of things like salary caps and revenue sharing and luxury taxes and reverse order of finished drafts and things like that. They're all designed to promote competitive balance. Now, um, the other set of models, so the first set of models are called attendance models. The second set of models are called price models. And the explanatory factors in price models are, are virtually the same, except uh, in, in this day and age when you have dynamic ticket pricing and you're worrying about why prices change from game to game. Um, but in the old days, prices were set at the beginning of the season and pretty much, and so the analysis didn't tend to be so much game by game, but more at the season-specific level because prices tended to be fixed for the season. But, but the, the models are very similar, and, and, and whenever I have students who want to estimate one model or the other, I tell them, well, if you're looking at literature, look at both sets of models because people are worrying about very similar issues. The, the sort of factors that drive attendance are also the sort of factors that you would think would, would correlate with higher ticket prices. Do you think that the introduction of these new uh, AI websites and technologies that are now out there and evolving on their own and learning machines, do you think that'll have a significant impact on this specific sector? That you know, it'll be fun to watch. I, I don't really know. Um, I, I have, if, if, if you've been in my classes this semester, you'll discover that, that I think chat G, GPT is fantastic. I think this is going to be, uh, it's going to revolutionize how we do all sorts of things. I will tell you, I've already done a search. I was hoping that ChatGPT could build a data set for me because it was going to be a lot of work. And, and they said, sorry, this, <laughs> this is not in our tool bag. We don't do that sort of stuff. Um, but it'll be, it'll be fascinating to, to see what artificial intelligence, um, um, sort, of, sort of how useful it is and, and what it's able to provide. I, I think, I mean, I have heard people say, I, I was around for the development of, of high-powered calculators coming into vogue with Hewlett-Packard. This was quite some time ago. And at the time, everybody said, oh, no, students will forget how to do, the, to do arithmetic. And it was a friend of mine who's actually a professor of math who said, no, 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 this will, this will liberate the mind and free you to do more important stuff. And I think that's it's the same with chat, chat GPT. Um, I will say, relatedly, um, we have seen in, in recent years a lot of sort of machine learning type approaches and algorithms for sort of building sort of sports or doing estimating things in sports and and um and there's a no one knows exactly for instance with the new nba or ncaa i'm sorry college basketball rating model is doing but there are suspicions that it's basically a machine learning type model and um you know i'm i'm just learning about machine learning i think it, it has it it obviously has some tremendous capabilities what what I, what I haven't been able to figure out is how it helps me with answering the question after I've run the model and I look at the results and I want to improve the analysis. I, I, I don't know that it, it's very helpful in telling me what I should do next. Whereas when you're doing econometrics, you know, you look at your results and you say, okay, I have a good feel for what's going on with the model and I understand what I need to do now. Machine learning just gives you forecasts, and it doesn't necessarily explain why the forecasts are what they are, other than to say it's a really good forecast, you know. And um, so, and I would separate those two things from one another. But you're certainly seeing a lot of machine learning in um, 
with people working on sports data. And, and, and that's, you know, really developed, I think, you know, fairly recently, and that'll be fun, fun to watch. That's super cool. Um, yeah, artificial intelligence is definitely one of those things that we're going to see impact a lot of yeah. sectors of life. Do you think it's going to ever affect, like, how teams even manage themselves or something like that? Well, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I go back to Terry Francona, you know, <laughs> I think. <laughs> you know, I'm sure somewhere he's saying, yeah, you can tell me what chat, chat GPT is telling you, and, and I'll think about it. And uh, I will, you know, I mean, um, I, I think also, I mean, there's a... I was I was reading um, something uh, related to composing a music composition where somebody had ChatGPT write a song in the style of so and so and so and so and you would all know the name I I don't recognize the name and so and so said you know they they sent it to so and so and said what do you think and he said this is garbage and <laughs> and and the reason he said it he said is it's pretty simple which is that when he writes a song he's trying to be innovative and new and different. And what ChatGPT is doing is a synthesis of what people have done historically. And so, you know, if you're looking for innovation and creativity, I mean, I mean, if, if artificial intelligence can take us there, that'll be pretty exciting, I think. But, but if all it is is a better job of Wikipedia and, and, give it, and it gives you a product that, that you can copy and paste into your into your term paper. <laughs> I have done, by the way, um, there is a... There was some software from a, a undergrad at Princeton that was supposed to give professors a, a way of checking for ChatGPT, and so um, I, I I had ChatGPT give me a definition of the compensating variation, which is something that Martin might remember from uh, from microeconomic theory, and 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 what ChatGPT gave me was I thought pretty good uh, as a definition of compensating variation, and then I gave it to the software in Princeton. And it came back and said it was likely written by a human being. <laughs> so we'll see how this this plays out. But 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 unlike my colleague, I mean, I, there's a related point which I would just throw it out there. I, I you know I do think that in this day and age, the facts and the data are readily available, and that an education is moving away from kind of memorizing facts uh, and sort of. You know, understanding how to analyze facts and work with facts and, and be creative and, and, and think about what other facts you might be looking for and so forth. And so it's, these are more skills of synthesis than, than, than memorization. I think, you know, I think education is moving in that direction, or should be as well. I mean, the, the days of art history majors having to memorize, you know, when was the painting painted? What was the name of the artist? In what museum is it currently located? I mean, those days, I hope, are over, um, but maybe not. That's good to hear that some aspect of the humanity part will still reside in us so that we Absolutely. will have useful um, tasks to do with yeah. also, I mean, being aided by uh, innovative technologies like that on its own. But for your own experience, I know that from your bio, you... Uh, coached girls basketball at Newton. Uh -huh. So from a coaching point of view, how has your vast knowledge within this space <laughs> helped you strategize against other teams and games? Have you used it? Do you think professional coaches no. uh, dictate what they do based on models? Oh, uh, the, the, the NBA has changed completely, I'm sure. I, I don't have any personal information about this, but but starting, I think it's with, with, it's been within the last 10 years, uh, or so, maybe it's 15. I mean, now NBA teams have second-by-second second data on not only where the ball is on the court, but where every player is on the court. And, and that data, I, I know researchers, the NBA made that data available to researchers for a while, and I, I downloaded what I could, and, and now it's, it's all back in-house. And there is no doubt in my mind that the NBA is uh, making good use of, of, of that data. I I um, I don't think that I mean the, the big change at least to my mind in the NBA in, in the last fifteen or twenty years has been the development of of the, the, this game that features sort of two aspects of scoring either you dunk the ball or you shoot three pointers and if you take my econometrics class you, you'll discover that you don't need lots and lots of sophisticated data to figure that out that it's pretty obvious in some simple. Uh, diagrams and statistics that that 
I sometimes get to share with students if, if, if I'm doing that. But in terms of my own strategy, um, so I was coaching, I coached uh, Newton girls basketball. I have three daughters who all played in Newton girls basketball, and, and I coached probably for over a decade. Um, and rule number one was all all players needed to play, were, were required to play evenly because it was a recreational league. And so the big challenge for me over the course of the season uh, strategically was figuring out the substitution pattern. And, and I can tell you that I, if, you know, I never tried to do any sort of statistical analysis, but usually by the end of the season I sort of figured that out. But, um, but no, I never used any, any high food in statistics. We did use statistics um, to, uh, and I built ratings models to help us balance the schedule. We certainly did that, but that was more, uh, that was more to manage the, the, the competition on the court sort of, and schedule games. That was not sort of in-game coaching. No, I, I uh, <laughs> can't say I ever, ever did any statistical analysis for, for that. In terms of um, you know, management and specifically salaries, do you think salary affects player performance, affects management? Uh, one of the big things that I sort of read recently is that Greg Popovich, who is the coach of the Spurs, right. has one of the worst records in the league, and he's the highest paid coach in the league. I mean, does salary affect performance, I guess? Um, well, I mean, normally you would think that, that performance drives salary, not the other way around. Um, the... the um, I mean, there's some evidence that baseball players in the last year before free agency sort of just seem to have better seasons. Um, uh, the, uh, and, you know, maybe that's related to the prospect of, of free agency. Uh, with, with coaches, I mean, what's interesting, if you look at college coaches, and, and I've never looked at this closely, but if you just look at the basic statistics, you know, college coaches, football coaches get extraordinary salaries. Um, and the salaries are never cut, they're just fired. <laughs> so I think what you see in, in collegiate football is, and, and, um, and maybe this extends, there are no salary caps for, for, college, uh, for, for coaches in professional sports, as far as I know. Um, but what you, what you see is, you know, coaches get signed for extraordinary salaries, and either they deliver or they don't. Um, and if they don't deliver, they get fired, and that's the end of their, their, their stay. It, you know, you wonder, well, why couldn't they just cut the salary? I mean, this person clearly had some potential, um, but that's not what we, that's not what we observe. Um, do high salaries lead to poor performance as coaching? I, I'm, I guess you could do that analysis. I've never looked at that issue. I, it's stretches the imagination, but uh, um, who knows? I mean, we have, we have, we, well, we sort of have the data. We sort of don't. I mean, uh, we actually know a lot more about player salaries than coaches' salaries. Um, mm. um, I sort of developed an online simulation game that patterned after the NBA, and and um, and and we have a lot of data on NBA salaries. Even even though, of course, there isn't one number that's a salary. There are all sorts of special causes and conditions. Uh, getting good data on coaching salaries is actually a lot harder. Um, uh, player salaries are much more readily available. And how do, have you seen any uh, correlation with those player salaries and performance or anything like that? Yeah, no, there's, there's, clearly, there's clearly a relationship. And, and, you know, and if you're taking econometri econometrics, this, I don't know when this is going to be aired, but in the, in the uh, spring of 2023, mm. um, I've updated the labs uh, for econometrics so that they have, you'll have, be working with data from 2022 for both baseball and the NBA. And you'll be estimating player performance models, and yeah, there's there's a ton of explanatory power. They, um, doing or you can do a, a, a an okay job exploring that relationship with pretty primitive models, but if you want to do a really good job, that's a ton of work. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for instance, you, you wouldn't want to just look at you know the relationship in 2022 between performance and salary because the um, you know, there are an awful lot of people who are playing under contracts that were negotiated a long, long time ago. And so, you know, you might want to look at players who just are in the first year of a newly signed contract, or you might actually want to look at their salary in 2022 and compare it to their performance in 2021 and just restrict your attention to free agents, because that's where you might expect to see some effect. Otherwise, there's a lot, a lot of noise. I, I will say one thing that people forget about when they're doing those studies is the so-called aging superstar effect. 
uh, which is that you know fans love going to games and watching aging superstars who may or may not be performing at a level that they once performed at, but but that's that drives fan interest. So so you shouldn't be surprised to discover when you build these models that aging superstars, according to your models, are grossly overpaid, and that's because you left out a variable called the aging superstar effect. Um, it is a lot of, when people estimate these models, it's, it's a lot of fun to go back and look at, um, uh, to, to look at how, how, you know, which players are overpaid and which players are, are grossly underpaid. Or the other thing that people don't, you know, people forget that a lot of salaries are sort of pro forma for the first several years of, of, of play. And so, you know, if you're building a salary performance model, you, you don't want to include players who are, you know, they're in their rookie year in the NBA, and they're basically getting paid what they're going to get paid, irrespective of how they perform. And you want to look at, you know, how they're doing, sort of after they've renegotiated or, or negotiated the first real contract. For something like a real-time in-game model, yeah. a lot of people can use these to make predictions or outcomes yeah, yeah, about yeah. what they think is going to happen. Yeah. What? How do you do that, in a sense? Yeah. Is that more computer-based or human-based? So these models, um, I'm familiar with these models. I've actually had thesis students who worked on these models in um, both uh, looking at NBA games as well as looking at NHL games, hockey games. Um, and, um, and basically, the, the, the models are, to start, pretty straightforward. Um, and uh, but they end up oftentimes being pretty complicated, um, and they're straightforward uh, in, in the following respect. Basically, you're typically you have some game outcome result. Either you identify the winner or you identify the margin of victory or or, or, or defeat, uh, and that's that's what you're trying to explain. And then you need to uh, come up with a variable called the game state variable. And mm -hmm. the game state variable not only includes where you are in the game, but also everything that could be possibly at all relevant to, uh, so to, to the outcome of the game. And so it's all the history to date, maybe with some summary statistics, and it's also what's happening you know, in the game at that point in time and so forth. And, and so that's where you, know, you can be you know, more or less creative. And, and so, for instance, in baseball, a typical game state would be um, sort of an at-bat in an inning, how many outs, what the on-base configuration looks like, and what the score differential is, and whether or not the team is the home team or the, the visiting team. Um, and I've probably forgotten. But that, that's sort of a standard starting point. Um, and, and, and you can, uh, if you go to various, there are websites that will give you these, um, uh, the, I call these win expectancy models, so you're predicting the probability of a win based on where you are in the game and 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 and, and you can you can find this data I don't know if it's available real time but certainly after the fact you can you can watch the progression of win probabilities over the course of a game the the one variable that I that is is should be in these models that is often a bit of a surprise that people don't necessarily think about is at the start of the game there was something called the odds you know the the Vegas odds and and the, the the truth is I I don't gamble except at at the in horse racing but so and I do not recommend it to anybody um, I think it's just a terrible idea but um, there's a lot of evidence that the um, the probability of a win which you can back out of say a money line odds figure um, the, um, the or the point spreads are are not quite as that they'll give you a grosser number but um, but that number has a lot of predictive power at the start of a game. And so one of the, the, the interesting questions or challenges, so you should definitely have, say, the money line odds, implied probabilities in your model at the start of a game. Um, over time, of course, the importance of that variable should decline because what matters more and more as the game progresses is not, not what Vegas thought before the game started, but what's actually happening on the court. And so figuring out how to model sort of the declining importance of, of the odds figures, uh, is that's a bit of a challenge in these models. And that's the one variable that people might not necessarily think about when they're building these models. But otherwise, I mean, the data sets are absolutely huge. Um, uh, they have, um, you know, I know, of, I know of soccer data sets where you, you have tremendous data every two seconds in a, in a match. <laughs> yeah. um, in hockey, you have 
update every minute um, in basketball every minute. And, and so it's, and, and, you know, in basketball, you know what the score is and who's on the court and, you know, how many fouls and what all the statistics to date and so forth. So there's, there's an incredible amount of data. So the data sets are, can be enormous. Yeah, and that point of sports betting, so you do not sports bet yourself. No, I don't. No, I, I, I bet on horse racing. I've, I, have, I have a horse racing data set that uh, I've done sort of research with but never actually used. And it's very, data is 20, 20 years old or more. Um, but no, I, I don't. I don't and and I, um, I, my going in position is that I've seen lots of evidence that the wagering markets are efficient, which is that the odds that you're looking at are, are, are what they are for a reason. And, um, and the fact that you might disagree might tell you something about you rather than <laughs> the wisdom of the, you know, the masses. But now, if, if you have inside information, that's a different, um, you know, so if the fix is in and you know about the fix, fine, you know. <laughs> but, but then you should be going to the authorities and, and uh, you know, <laughs> talking about that. But, no, more seriously, um, uh, I... I I've seen lots of evidence on the efficiency of, of wagering markets, and, and, um, and so I, I just, you know, you can have fun, and maybe it is fun, but um, I, I've, I've never placed a sports bet other than horse race. I will go to the, the horse track, but I've never <laughs> bet, uh, and done any other wagering. I, I did notice, uh, yeah, I was reading just yesterday that Massachusetts has finally legalized sports gambling. Um, um, I, I did have years ago, I had students who thought they had done a fantastic job building a model to predict outcomes of NFL games. And um, I got so concerned that they might actually follow up on, on their analysis that I independently went and estimated their, re-estimated their model in other seasons and showed them how poorly they would have done in other seasons <laughs> wow, just to convince them this was a really bad idea. So I, um, um, and it is true, you know, you, you could get, you, you 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 could be very successful for a short while, and I would just say, yeah. When I flip coins, I've, sometimes I do get five heads in a row. It doesn't mean my coin has two heads. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. And do you see? So in your experience building these sports models, have you ever like thought, you know, there's some good indication that this game was rigged, maybe because of the sports betting yeah. market? Yeah. No, I I. Um, I, I have never seen that. I, I, I am aware that um, th there are there are people uh, I've, I've heard of. I've never met them, but there there, there are statisticians who look at the uh, progression of odds figures leading up to a match. Uh, I believe I, I've, I've heard of these people doing this for European uh, football or soccer, mm -hmm. um, and if if they see a sudden change in the odds. They get suspicious because if the odds change suddenly uh, for, for for no apparent reason. You know, it, it probably happened because somebody made a really large bet, um, and people who are making those really large bets might have inside information. And there have been scandals in in European f football with you know lines 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 men they're called although some are women. Um, you know, being paid off to make sort of calls over the course of the game or so forth. And, and um, you, you also, um, and there are allegations in tennis. I don't know how the people figure things out in tennis, but they certainly go back and, uh, and, and, and people have been, I think, convicted of fixing odds and matches in tennis. So, um, but no, I've never, I've never seen that. I, I, I haven't looked for it. I, I don't. Um, the money line odds data that I've worked with is not not nearly so fine to give me sort of minute by minute uh, sort of figures. I, I tend to look at just pregame odds and, and go from there. So, for the upcoming Super Bowl, do you have <laughs> any predictions based on your vast knowledge of who will win? Oh yeah, no, I I, uh, I do have predictions, but. Uh, <laughs> No, in terms of the game, I you know like I'm from Philadelphia um, originally, and uh, as as a kid, I used to sell newspapers at the Eagles game. So, wow, uh, so That's a cool job. Uh, I go way back, and and uh, I'm pleased to see the Eagles um, in the Super Bowl. Um, 
and I, I'm mindful that I guess when they played the Patriots, um, when we had Tom Brady and Donovan McNabb, that you know it was a tie ball game going into the fourth quarter, and um, so let's hope this is a tie ball game going into the fourth quarter. I, I, uh, I, I do not have a prediction. I, I do think. I mean, at the moment, the Eagles I think are favored, or maybe it's now Kansas City again. The line has been moving back and forth, and and. Um, I tend to think of the line as being an unbiased estimator, um, and so I don't know what it is right now. But but you know the, the line is certainly suggesting a very close game, and 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 let's hope it is. Um, yeah, I think it's minus one twenty Eagles and plus one hundred five Chiefs. Okay, Last I got the I numbers. I got the numbers in my head. I believe <laughs> that, that to be true. Yeah, and and a lot of that I think probably is related to Patrick Mahone's ankle and how mobile he is, and and. You know, we'll see how it goes. But but the good news, more than anything, is is you know I I had thought that going into the postseason that that the AFC or American you know whatever AFL had had the you know the, the two best teams were Buffalo and and we're, we're going to come out of Buffalo, Cincinnati, and Kansas City, and that that no one in the you know in the in the uh, other league would be competitive, and now it actually looks like it might be a game. So that's yeah, that that'll be fun to watch. I I also watched. I, I've done a lot of work on television advertising and and in sports in particular, and so I will pay a lot of attention to the advertising. It's good to hear. <laughs> so yeah, do you yeah, have any? Great. You anything else, sir? No, that's all. Mine. That's all. Well, thank you. Anything else? Any parting words? Any parting uh, no, bits no, of advice in the sports no. betting market to Boston College students? Or <laughs> yeah, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I um, y- yeah, the, the, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm impressed that the, the market has taken off. I'm also impressed by how, uh, how accepted sports. I mean, I follow European soccer pretty closely, and of course, in Europe, sports wagering is, has been part of the scene for a long time, and it's interesting to see how, once it became accepted in the U.S., it's sort of just sort of pervasive um, and um, but just be just you know don't don't for one moment think just because you got successful doesn't mean you really know anything and and, and I would be very careful about all that I, I, I uh, I've seen lots of evidence that these wagering markets are efficient and um, and that's that's bad news for people who are trying to make money on a consistent basis um, so yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm not a. I, yeah, my, my advice is to stay away. I mean, okay. and I go to the horse track. It's just for me. It's the fun, and I make small wagers, and I just it's fun to, f- fun to do, and fun to see what happens. And I, I think small wagers are, a good thing in, in whatever sport you're betting on. Perfect. Well, thank you. That's coming from a sports economist, <laughs> our Dr. Maxwell here, and thank you so much for coming on today. Great. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Thank well, you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all, folks. I'm Martin. We hope you learned a little bit more about sports econometrics, specifically in the world of ratings modeling. Stay tuned for more podcast episodes in the future with myself, Jose, and other members of the Boston College Economics Association. Thank you for listening.